On 24th of August 410, the Goth leader Alaric sacked Rome for the first time in 800 years and so shocked the Mediterranean world. The city that once captured the hearts and minds of the world had been captured. For a century, Rome had debated whether to stick with its old pagan beliefs or stay with its new state religion of Christianity. For three centuries it had fought with and absorbed Germanic tribes like the Goths, many of whom had also become Christians. And now, to pagan Romans, the sack of Rome by these Christian barbarians was the final verdict on their corrupt, declining empire. Three days later, across the sea in the African city of Hippo, the then bishop and later Saint Augustine preached to his Christian followers who were filled with grief and terror as Edward Gibbon later wrote that this fall of the hyperpower of Europe was not caused as the pagans had said by the spread of Christian religion it was caused by the failure of pagan military Rome. Augustine began to write his book City of God and in it put the view that good Christians should not seek to build grand worldly empires but rather true religious communities cities of God and so he laid down one of the foundation texts of Western culture did the fall of Rome then also lead to the birth of Europe Christendom and Western civilization that is the question for today's burning archive I am uh, Jeff Rich. I am a writer, historian, podcaster, poet, and very minor government official. And this is the Burning Archive podcast about all things history and culture, where the past is never dead, the past is not even past, and whereby thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present. So today in the Burning Archive podcast, I am talking about the Roman Empire its decline, its fall, and its uncanny resurrection. And depending on how you count it, and just how many times the Roman Empire actually fell, and when it fell, the Roman Empire lasted over a thousand years, or even over two and a half thousand years. So that's a hell of a lot of history to try to fit into a single podcast. So I am going to try to do my best not to get too distracted and to, of course, of course, such a huge topic will leave lots of opportunities and side topics to explore in later podcasts. And of course, this is the second in a series of seven podcasts that are responding to questions posed to the Burning Archive podcast by Freya Rich about the kind of topics that young people and Freya Rich would feel that it would be good to know more about and to understand better. So let's just remind ourselves, first of all, of how Freya framed the question about the Roman Empire. So, yeah, so I've got these seven items and the way I sort of thought about it was seven items that of you know, either cultural or historical significance that I think I would like to know more about or that I think sort of my generation would like to know more about 
as things that maybe I don't know anything about or things I know something about or things that I really should know more about. The first item is the fall of the Roman Empire. So this is something that I thought would be good to know about just because I feel everyone knows the Roman Empire existed and then it fell, but I really don't have many details around that at all. And I think it's really interesting to think about how, to, to my understanding at least, Rome was a whole different kind of world and that world was a whole different sort of world to our world and it was a different way of organising and and maybe kind of the period that felt that was sort of after the Roman Empire is a period that we kind of become increasingly more familiar with. But that sort of time period and event, I really don't know much about, which I think is a shame because it, it's so significant. So, yeah, so that's, that's the first one. So Rome, it fell. How did it fall? What happened after it fell? What was it like right before it fell? And, and all, all of that jazz. So some great questions there. What was what was Rome? Um, what was it like before it fell? How did it fall? And what happened afterwards? And why is it, I guess, that we all know Rome fell? It's just something that we absorb in the culture, but we can't necessarily draw back and place that into a more coherent story that connects the story of Rome to us today, both realising some of the enduring legacy and kinship with the Roman Empire, but also just how different that world was to what we are today. And as Freya Rich said in that brief clip, or sort of implied in that brief clip, we all have fragments of the history of the Roman Empire that we pick up in the culture. Uh, Most of us would have watched Gladiator, that magnificent film with Russell Crowe and Richard Harris and Joachim Phoenix, or read Asterix cartoons of Roman soldiers and Gaul, the story of Anthony and Cleopatra, or Pontius Pilate persecuting Jesus, some of the references in Game of Thrones, indeed King's Landing in the Game of Thrones television series is actually the castle of a Roman emperor Diocletian in Split and so on and so forth. What exactly happened with this this enormous empire? Uh, So that's what I'm going to try to do today. I'm going to try to pull back and not engage in silly nostalgia about Rome because, well, you know, it was quite a violent place but also not denigrate Rome because, after all, Rome has for centuries been studied as the classical foundation of Western civilization and, indeed, Western political institutions. The Senate in Australia, the Senate in America are based on the Roman model of the Senate, after all, and evoke that tradition. And as I intimated in episode 22, in responding to the question as it was first posed by Freya, whether Rome declined and fell, and when it fell, is a matter for debate. There are multiple dates given as to when it fell. And depending on whether you talk about the Western Empire, the Eastern Empire, or successor states like the Holy Roman Empire, you come up with different dates as to when exactly it fell. 
Some historians even say perhaps the empire never really ended, it just continuously transformed into different incarnations. And as to why it fell, well, one historian has actually identified 210 possible explanations of that, so I could probably spend 210 podcasts talking about why exactly Rome fell but I'm sure I would have no subscribers to the Burning Archive at the end of that. I've got to confess too that in approaching this topic I've got a broad sense of the history of Rome but I'm relatively poorly read in the history of Rome there and and indeed in the Roman classics I am much better read in some other traditions and other uh, imperial histories but uh, I do have a sense of the key current historians and some of the key arguments and so all I'm really hoping to do today is give you a bit of an introductory guide in the spirit that Freya posed the question to me about well what are some details about this historical concept of the fall of Rome and why does it matter to us today. So the way I'm going to address this is in five parts. So the significance and scale of the Roman Empire, what sort of fuss about, the basic story arc of the Roman Empire, with a bit of the fo- a focus more on the key events and people involved, especially in the story of its fall. Why did it fall? What's the explanation? And then what came after the fall, including the legacy and many renaissances or refoundings of forms of the Roman Empire, or at least of classical culture. And then finally, I'm just going to give a bit of a personal perspective on how Roman civilization, or the classics, fits into my perspective on the Burning Archive. Let's get into it then. After a little bit from One of the more iconic references for Roman history today, the film Gladiator. He knows too well how to manipulate the mob. Marcus Aurelius had a dream that was Rome, Proximo. This is not it. This is not it. Marcus Aurelius is dead, Maximus. We mortals are but shadows and dust. Shadows and dust, Maximus! Okay, first topic, the significance and scale of the Roman Empire. So Rome is sometimes known as the Eternal City and the Roman Empire ran for at least a thousand years, possibly two thousand years. And it Rome is part of the, I guess, Greco-Roman civilization that is the foundation of the classics as we know them in a Western culture. And, you know, many of the famous names of classical literature come from Rome, especially the golden age of Augustan Rome, which is roughly around the time of 30 uh, AD to a little bit after the birth of Christ. So it was a great successful empire in Europe around the Mediterranean, encompassing also North Africa and I guess what we now think of as the Middle East. But crucially, it was a dominant 
empire that was never recreated in an enduring way in Europe ever again. So one of the significances of Rome is that after it fell, it didn't really ever get back fully on its feet, even though people repeatedly aspired to that. It was a Mediterranean empire and a Mediterranean culture that reached out and covered most of Europe. The Roman civilization, let's say, emerged, or culture, let's say, emerged, I guess, gradually and organically from the previous Hellenic civilization of ancient Greece, and very much also reflected a Mediterranean culture, a shared world amongst a a range of states in the Mediterranean area in that era from about 500 BC to uh, 500 AD. The historian of Rome, Walter Schadl, explains that Rome was formed through a gradual coalescing of small polities, or, or, or um, like think Greek city-states, like Athens, that sort of thing, into a handful of large imperial states. Rome was a city, a town, I guess, and then a city, and then ultimately an empire. It grew up as, I guess, a Western outpost of Hellenic civilization, but was also very much influenced by the Persian Empire to the east. And by the 3rd or 2nd century before BC, or BCE as we say nowadays, before the contemporary era, uh, there were really five warring states around the Mediterranean who were sort of duking it out together with a few small states and the sort of tribal periphery of Europe for control of the Mediterranean. So there was Rome, there was Carthage, uh, there was Macedon, which I don't know much about, there was the Seleucid Empire, uh, which is kind of like a, a, a version, a successor to the Persian Empire, and there was Egypt. And Rome gradually sort of fights with those different states and establishes unification and hegemony uh, in the period around about 200 BCE to about 189 BCE. And then it goes through a period of expansion by conquest, direct conquest, really in the period between 148 BCE to about 30 BCE. So think wars of Carthage and Hannibal and his uh, elephants, that sort of thing. But also think Julius Caesar going and conquering Britain. I came, I saw, I conquered, he said in 55 or 54 BC. And then there was also expansion to the tribal periphery, sort of the Germanic borders uh, into Germany, what we now think of as Germany and Czechoslovakia, those sorts of places. And Uh, Also, suppression of revolts in some of the sort of more uh, eastern provinces like Judea. Uh, There was a major revolt of the Jewish people in uh, 136. Through those three sort of processes of conquest, essentially, the Roman Empire gradually grows. And interestingly, these days, there's a growing, uh, I guess, recognition that at around about the same time as the great Roman Empire, it was not the only great empire in the world at that time. In fact, 
on the other end of Eurasia, on the eastern end of Eurasia, the Chinese or Han Qin Empire was very similar. It had a similar size of about 4 million square kilometres, a similar population of about 60 million people, and its era of dominance was over a similar time broadly, around about 200 BCE to 200, 400 AD or CE as they say these days. And there were similar processes, I guess, of literate culture and state formation and military uh, military techniques that allowed that domination. So it's a fascinating topic, actually, to compare what happened in Rome and what happened in China. The greatest reach of the Roman Empire, or the greatest territory controlled by the Roman Emperor, Roman Empire was under the Emperor Trajan in around about 100-120 AD, or... CE as they say and you can actually go uh, on the internet and check a digital map of the Roman world and I'll put a, a link to this in the show notes but Harvard Uni has a digital map of the Roman world which is called Mapping Past Society's Digital Atlas of the Roman and Medieval Civilizations and you can just get a sense of the sheer scale of Rome. Uh, You can effectively draw a diagonal line from sort of Scotland to Georgia uh, down through Europe there and that's that's Rome. And then there's also Spain and France, all of Northern Africa and all of the Middle East and up into Armenia and those sorts of places, what we now think of as Turkey. So it was an enormous territory with some incredible cities like Rome and Constantinople, now Istanbul. Uh, and many other Roman cities, some of which there are still, you can go to Europe and visit the former Roman cities like Bath and I think many, many others. The hallmark characteristics of Rome, Roman culture, Roman society, Roman empire, were, um, I guess, first of all, its military, discipline and success, uh, famous Roman legions. It was a very well-organized military, a very successful military, and also a military, a, a society and a political community which placed the military in an important dominant position. It was also known for its its legal system, its civil administration, and its control of public finances. Roman law uh, still influences European law today. It was renowned also for its institutional innovation in politics, its political genius. It's created forms of government that are still, you know, intellectual bedrocks for people today, like the idea of a republic, uh, the idea of a senate, uh, the idea of plebs and plebeians, political rhetoric, speech-making, and many other things. It was also an incredibly successful trade network commercial society economy wealthy uh, and trading around the world clearly not equally distributed wealth but still a rich and wealth wealthy society and so part of the significance of the fall of Rome was just that loss of commercial activity the loss loss of prosperous urban centers the loss of the sort of infrastructure as we'd know it 
today, like roads and, and whatnot, that supported all that trade network. And it was a highly literate culture that has left fragments, but uh, still significant uh, a significant legacy that informs uh, political rhetoric, like Cicero and political rhetoric, that informs history and approaches to politics, and that informs, shares many of the uh, myths and, well, of the Greeks, but just gave them different names. That's why when you talk about the Greek or Roman myths, there's, they're usually the same myths, but the Romans have a different name. Of course, there were many downside characteristics to Rome. In, for many of the people in Rome, they just had a subsistence economy. They had vast cities like Rome, but they were wrecked with waterborne disease and poor sanitation, that sort of thing. There was a lot of violence, including a lot of sexual violence. And there was clearly slavery and also enormous inequality in the society. So the whole term plebs comes from the term plebeian, meaning the people who are in contrast to the patricians of Rome. And as any anyone would know, there are also a hell, hell of a lot of mad emperors like Nero and Caligula and uh, Tiberius on his telephone. And of course, while the, the uh, I guess traditionally in the canon, so to speak, the Roman civilization is celebrated for a great cultural legacy and, you know, it's thought of as Roman civilization or classical civilization. These days, people tend to talk about uh, late antiquity as an important part of this uh, cultural period, historical period. And late antiquity is a more inclusive way of describing the many dreams coming into Roman culture. But some of the famous writers, let's say, of Roman culture, like Virgil, who sort of retells the Homerian epics in a sort of Latin or, or Roman way, I guess Latin, is the language of Rome. There's Horace, who a famous poet. There's Ovid, who uh, was a famous poet, although perhaps not so highly esteemed these days. There was Cicero, a politician and grand rhetorician. Seneca, who was an essayist as well as a politician, but is also seen as one of the Stoics. There was Marcus Aurelius, who was an emperor and whose meditations are still widely used and quoted today as a way of a guide to Stoicism. Then, and in the historians, there was Tacitus and Livy. So many, many people that you can read. And I've got to say, I have read a little bit of Seneca of that list, a little bit of Seneca, one or two fragments out of Ovid. That's about it. So I've probably got a bit of reading to do to be credible commentator on Roman history and literature, but we'll push on. As I said, the concept of late antiquity and Roman culture and civilization now also includes the way in which the sort of core Roman pagan culture or classical culture, the Greco-Roman world, absorbed and contributed to Christian culture because the Roman Empire turned Christian in after fighting the Christians they sort of 
actually became Christians and that Christianity became the state religion from around about 300, 330 AD um, or CE. Also, the barbarians or the Germans and other other cultures around the periphery of Rome also contributed to the culture and formed these sort of unique unique sort of blends. And of course there were other, I guess, regional areas, especially around the Mediterranean that, that formed this. So you shouldn't think this is like a culture all coming out of central Italy. It's actually a culture of the Mediterranean that is actually picking up a variety of religious traditions and forming and adapting and constantly transforming itself. And nowadays, um, I guess there's a lot more emphasis on even though there is a fall of Rome, it's not like there's a sharp break in the culture of this uh, Mediterranean world or this sort of shared world that is formed through the incorporation of the sort of Germanic tribes and others into the great Roman state. There's a lot more continuity and there's not really a shattering of this cultural Mediterranean world until the Islamic conquests in the 7th and 8th century. And it's really perhaps at that point that the, the, there's a, a, a partition, let's say, in the cultures of the Mediterranean world. Uh, that it goes in different ways and and isn't a sort of um, a sort of a creative merger, let's say. And I guess also, I mean, part of the significance of the fall of Rome is simply that after the fall of Rome, there was in the old historiography the Dark Ages and the medieval period. In fact, the whole idea of the medieval period means the middle period between the classical era of Greco-Roman success, high point, and Renaissance, you know, modern European resurgence. Of course, people have a much more rich and complex sense of things nowadays, but throughout that era, after, variously after 300 AD or 700 AD, there are many ruins lost manuscripts, abandoned manuscripts, abandoned cities, abandoned baths, art that no one knows how to recreate anymore. And so there is this sense of a a kind of a great ruin sitting around Europe that people uh, look back on and wish they could return to in some ways. And that is part of the significance of the fall of Rome. This is the second part which are of the little podcast where I am going to talk about the basic story arc of the Roman Empire. As I can see, I'm about 26 minutes in. I've decided I'm going to have to break this podcast into two parts. So uh, earlier on in the podcast, I sort of gave a broad account based on uh, Scheidel's work of the gradual expansion of Rome from a boondocks city-state on the outer rim of the great Hellenic civilization to the one empire that has unified Europe. But it was a very sort of political sociology sort of account. And I think one of the, the, the enduring fascination people have with Rome and the fall of Rome is that it is a 
I guess, a classic case of just how uh, there can be so many extraordinary twists and turns in narrative accounts of history that the truth really is stranger than fiction and indeed that the history of Rome has been a great source of fiction uh, and and a great testament or, or a great source for people just to admire and be astonished by and curious about the variety of human experience and uh, so it's I'll just you know try to quickly sketch in the four broad eras of Roman history which were the sort of kingdom era from about 750 BC to about 500 BC and then the Republic uh, the era of the Republic still mourned by uh, the people in Gladiator. And then the era of the, the imperial era, the, the era when Rome was actually ruled by an emperor, when that really lasted from about 30 BC to variously uh, 330 to 476 BC, when the Western Roman Empire ends, and then finally the sort of afterlife of the Roman Empire in the various successor states such as the Byzantine Empire and the Holy Roman Empire. Okay, so the first period is really the kingdom, the uh, the period of kings. Now mythically at least Rome was founded in 753 BC by Romulus who was like a uh, abandoned orphan who was nursed by a wolf mother. That at least is the story. He and his twin, whose name I can't remember. Um, but in reality, uh, Rome really formed from a previous Etruscan sort of uh, culture in that, er- that area of uh, Italy. And Rome as such it has, it seems to be attested by pretty strong archaeological evidence these days. It was founded around 625 BC. And a, a city-state was gradually formed by villages in that area for joining together and sort of, I guess, in common defence against, against neighbouring invaders. That period lasts to... There's a, a king, um, in fact many, many kings, uh, and quite an unstable period. But it leads into the second era that begins really in about 510 BC, where Rome actually establishes a republican constitution. And this second era lasts to about 30 BC, so whatever that is, nearly 500 years. And it's, it's commonly the, the source of martial virtue, admirable soldiers, Spartan farmer soldiers, and also in the nostalgia, nostalgic thinking, such as that expressed in Gladiator, of truer, truer or more virtuous citizens uh, who, who, who were true to their spirit of self-government in a republic. Of course, uh, this era is also an era of frequent wars to unify the various Mediterranean states that 
Scheider was talking about and constant civil wars and sort of swinging between the Republican form of government and when things got a little bit unstable, calling in a dictator. So there was actually a, a, a rule within the within the Republican constitution to sort of have a temporary dictator to get things back under control. The Republican form of government was really where the upper classes ruled, uh, called senators and oh, equestrians or knights, but and that is the tradition of self-government through reason debate in in the Senate that is constantly evoked, and in a way also becomes the the idealistic memory of later traditions of small r republicanism uh, such as in the American constitution and political philosophies. Throughout this period Rome continued to expand and it gradually gained control over the entire Italian peninsula by about 338 BC Uh, and then it took its wars further afield including to North Africa where in the Punic Wars between 246 and 146 BC, there were conflicts with Greece and conflicts with Carthage, uh, including the famous uh, conflicts with the Carthaginian general Hannibal, who marched his elephants over the Alps and actually threatened Rome. Uh, And ultimately, Rome besieged the city of Carthage and in fact destroyed it in its uh, sheer revenge. And after, despite the expansion or after the expansion, particularly in that period between 150 BC to uh, about 30 BC, there's constant social tensions within the Republic that are driving, you know, periods of instability, chaos, civil war, with dictators coming in, uh, and two of the more famous dictators were Sulla and Julius Caesar. And it was that same Julius Caesar, of course, who was killed by Brutus in a Shakespeare play at the Ides of March, and also who conquered Gaul, so France and Britain. But it was in 44 BC that he was was assassinated and he was replaced by by two uh, sort of twin rulers uh, one was called Octavian and the other was Mark Antony Mark Antony of course fell in love with Cleopatra and hence we have the whole Antony and Cleopatra thing and that was really a war to control Egypt and a war to control, you know, the sort of the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. So it was in 31 BC that Rome overtook Egypt. Mark Antony died. Uh, Cleopatra killed herself with an asp. And then Octavian, uh, the sort of joint uh, ruler in the late Republic, assumed the title of Augustus and became the first emperor of Rome. So inaugurating the strict period of the Roman imperial era. 
when there was an emperor. I guess in a broader sense of empire, I would still say it was still functioning as an empire during its period of the Republic, rather like the American Republic. But anyhow, so from, I guess, the next era really takes us through to the collapse or the fall, the traditional fall of the Western Roman Empire, which we can date it tends to be dated as 476 BC. So this is, again is a period of, of close to 500 years. Augustus was a fascinating figure. I think his wife, Livia, was an even more fascinating figure. And she exercised very significant power. And following on from Augustus, there was a whole series of fascinating and weird and bizarre and bad emperors and perhaps the best uh, way of finding out about that is not so much to listen to me in my podcast as to watch the famous television series from the 1960s uh, 1970s from 1976 i think i claudius which you can watch on YouTube, I uh, discovered last night. And that tells the extraordinary story of Augustus and Tiberius and Claudius and Nero and Caligula. I highly recommend everyone watch that. And I remember myself watching that. Uh, I guess I was about 13 years old and it really been part of the, the thing that you know engaged me in history. And in the story of Claudius, the emperor who really wanted to be a historian, was a perhaps misleading life model for me. Uh, Okay, so after that era, we have what's called the Antonine period in the second century. Antonine after the family name of a group of the emperors. And this era includes... Marcus Aurelius, uh, the emperor who's depicted in the film Gladiator. It also includes the emperor Hadrian, who built Hadrian's Wall in, you know, I guess the border between Scotland and England as the sort of wall on the outer limits of the empire, which of course is also the real historical model for the Great Wall in Game of Thrones. And in this uh, century also, I discovered, if we just look ahead a little bit to the later episode in response to the question from the listener, Josh, about why three different faiths lay claim to Israel or Jerusalem, in the years 132 to 135 AD or CE, there's actually a revolt Uh, of the Jews in Judea, uh, led by someone called Simon Bar Kokhba, who who drives the Romans out of Jerusalem and holds it uh, for a while. In fact, uh, uh, until a large Roman army comes back and recovers the city. And this period of the second century uh, the Antonine era is often seen as the uh, the greatest um, or, or the the period of best rule and best achievement uh, where the most capable rulers 
of Rome were and who found effective means to control both the social pressures and the military pressures and I guess the diplomatic pressures of integrating such a large empire across such a large territory with melding melding different elements of their societies with with non-Romans coming into Rome uh, and being part of its its Pax Romana. In the third century, though, uh, there is what's called the crisis of the third century, which, um, as we'll talk about a little bit more in the uh, next episode, is one of the key factors that weaken the Roman Empire and lead to its downfall. And during this period, there is certainly rebellions and attacks and on the sort of European frontier up to the German tribes in Italy, uh, uh, sorry, in in France and in England to some degree. Uh, But more importantly, perhaps still, there is a revived Persian Empire known as the Sassanid Empire attacking from the east and representing a much more substantial military, economic and power, geopolitical uh, sort of threat to the Roman Empire. And this leads the Roman Empire to shift a lot of its resources from Rome and the sort of German and Western European provinces to defend the East and uh, contributes to a general sort of crack up of the empire, you know, growing dissension and tensions. But then it was combined with a misfortune of significant plagues and and uh, problems with disease, depopulation, and all that comes with that in its sort of large and unsanitary, highly unequal uh, cities. Ultimately, in 285 CE, the empire is formally split first into uh, into the sort of Western and Eastern Roman empires, indeed into four broad regions with four sort of kind of sub-emperors called the Tetrarchy. This continues for a while, and then in the 4th century, uh, there is something of a resurgence and a, a regathering around stronger rulers, but centred more on in the eastern half of the empire, where all the action is, so to speak, uh, in terms of wealth and geopolitical conflict. And uh, that is where uh, the emperor Constantine founds the new city of Constantinople, uh, Constantine is the emperor from 306 to 337 uh, CE. And Constantine's important too because he converts to Christianity. So he, in a way, sort of founds the Byzantine Empire, but he is also one of the most significant rulers. Uh, and, you know, he the story goes that he converted to Christianity after having a dream where uh, in in a battle against some of the sort of internal rebels within uh, Rome, 
he saw a a like a cross sign, a kiro, uh, in in the sky, and asked his soldiers to to um, put it on their shields, and then and subsequently really uh, converted finally pagan Rome into Christian Rome. But again, later in this uh, fourth century, the the internal tensions within Rome bubble up. Uh, the Scots, the Picts, the Saxons and the Franks all sort of attack the Roman Empire in the sort of 367 CE sort of time period. And some of the tensions, uh, the, the sort of degradation of the Roman city uh, leads, the city of Rome itself leads in 402 to Ravenna in Italy becoming the capital of the Western Roman Empire. So after the capital was moved from Rome to Constantinople by Constantine, then the Western Roman Empire itself moved to Ravenna. And uh, there's different uh, versions of uh, Christianity, Aryan Christianity, which is generally practiced here. Then, of course, 410, the sack of Rome by the Visigoth Alaric, who was a Christian Aryan uh, barbarian who who really wanted uh, to negotiate and have have a stronger role within within Rome. So, if you like, it's almost a bit like there are these sort of internal warlords within Rome who've been incorporated within the empire but are claiming more authority, more power, and perhaps also have more skill than the native, so to speak, Romans, who then sort of ultimately come and attack it. Another group of barbarians called the Vandals come in, and again, these barbarian invasions are partly driven by the migrations of people stimulated by expansion of the Han or Zhangnu Empire in uh, Central Asia. But the Vandals in 439 take Carthage from the Roman Empire and make it their new capital uh, and also expand into sort of... Visigoths have also expanded into Italy and into Spain. In 451, the famous Attila the Hun is attacking uh, Rome in various places in uh, sort of Central Europe. And in 451, it's when Attila is defeated by Rome's allies, both Rome itself and some of these other competing um, Visigoth-type groups. In 455, Rome is sacked again. Uh, this time by the Vandals. And the Vandals is also the term one uses for vandalism, the source, I guess, of the term for vandalism. And then in 476, another one of these kind of Christian Gothic, I think he was an Ostrogoth, sort of warlords named Odoasa, deposes uh, the last... Roman Western Roman Emperor Romulus Augustus 
uh, forces him into retirement. I think there's some story about him sort of inviting him to dinner and getting someone killed, but I'm a bit weak on that story. And then uh, he hands back the uh, insignia of the Roman Empire to Constantinople, to the Eastern Roman Empire, and he installs himself not as Emperor of Western Rome, but as King of Italy. And then finally, in 480 CE, Julius Nepos, the last Western Roman Emperor, dies as the unofficial end of the Western Roman Empire. In 486, uh, a similar process happens in France or Gaul, as in what was happening in Italy, and a kind of Christian barbarian or Christian Frankish king, Clovis of the Franks, defeats the Romans uh, and founds the Frankish kingdom and then gets the church to anoint him as king. And that is the sort of symbolic commencement of the nation of France in 488 to 493 Theodoric one of the oh, in fact Theodoric the Great of the Ostrogoths comes in and conquers all of Italy so at that point things are looking pretty wretched but back in Constantinople in the 500s between 527 and 565 one of the most significant of the Byzantine slash Roman Eastern Roman emperors Justinian uh, comes to power and rules and he introduces the Justinian Code a complete rewrite of Roman law and is a highly let's say a highly effective leader and he indeed attempts to win back many of these territories that the Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Goths and Vandals have taken from the Roman Empire. He uh, wages war in Africa and wages war in Italy and in the Balkans and that sort of thing and uh, indeed does recapture things for a bit but also with devastating effect in particular in Italy. So some people say that paradoxically it was actually less the barbarian, you know, so-called barbarian, the Visigoths, etc., etc., attacks on Rome so much as Justinian's war to recapture the Roman glory in Italy that actually devastated uh, Italy for centuries. And Justinian has some success, but ultimately there is a devastating plague i think it's sometimes seen i think it's maybe seen as maybe like the same as the black death type plague but i'm a a little bit unclear about that um that that destroys his uh fortune and weakens uh the byzantine empire just 50 or so years before the rise of islam and then with the rise of islam Things get hard, and then perhaps we just conclude this story with, in 800 CE, Charlemagne the Great of the Franks is proclaimed the Western 
Roman Emperor by Pope Leo III and attempts to refound the Roman Empire. And that is brings us really, so that's really the story of the fall, the slow, weird process of two steps back, one step forward, two steps back, of the decline of the Roman Empire. As is indicated though, there were there was also I guess these successor states, the afterlife of the Roman Empire. In there was clearly Constantine's foundation of the Eastern Roman Empire uh, that survives until 1453 and, and is a whole magnificent story in itself, uh, the Byzantine Empire. There is also the Holy Roman Empire, which is really founded by uh, Charlemagne, has in, uh, is perhaps one of the more complicated um, political entities to understand, but that really lasts formally until eight, 1806, the Holy Roman Empire. So it really lasts another thousand years and included like the original Frederick Barbarossa and uh, the Habsburg, Habsburg kings of Spain like Charles the And it's really only dissolved formally after Napoleon established his own empire, his own French empire over most of Europe in the early 19th century and he formally dissolves the Holy Roman Empire. And of course there were the various Gothic successor states to the Roman Empire, the Aryan, Christian, Ostrogothic, Visigothic and Vandal uh, states which represented that sort of fusion of classical Roman culture, Christian culture and barbarian, if I can just use that word in a non-pejorative term, uh, cultures as well. The thousand-year Holy Roman Empire, of course, followed the thousand-year original Roman Empire and and it was for that reason that uh, Hitler, of course, referred to his empire that he was founding as the Third Reich. It was the third thousand-year Reich uh, that would would follow those first two. And in that sense, he was just one of many people who were taking on the mantle of the great Roman Empire because for, I guess, for European culture, it was the the best known, best documented, most remarkable story of, uh, I guess, imperial success. Indeed, even in uh, Moscow, there was an argument after the collapse of the Christian Orthodox Byzantine Empire, which had exported its religion and its script and... Uh, a lot of its political culture to the uh, Eastern European uh, Russian Orthodox world, sort of like a common cultural sphere. There was a, a theory in 15th and 16th century Russia 
that Moscow would rise as the third Rome. And then similarly, if, if, with a lot of Western imperial or Western empires from the 1700s on, there was a great sort of use of the iconography, the symbols, the ideas, the the model of uh, the Roman Empire, whether that was in the British Empire, in the French Revolution, many of whom modelled themselves on on characters from the Roman Republic, uh, Napoleon, uh, later Louis Napoleon, later in in France, Germany, such as some of the symbolism in, in Hitler's Germany. And of course, one can never forget also the American Republic and indeed the American Empire. So there were all those efforts to get the fallen Roman Empire off the mat. And that is truly remarkable. And perhaps that's part of its fascination. I guess, as Scheidel said, there was this extraordinary thousand-year story of a successful empire that had unified Europe. And to give uh, the people of those different times their due, they didn't really have access to the language or culture to understand what was going on in China or Mongolia or in Africa or other places. So they didn't really have any other. This was history. This was, you know, the what they could reasonably understand as an example from the past. And not surprisingly, perhaps, they they sought to revive that imperial glory in imagining what their, their countries and their states might become. And as a result, the story of the fall of the Roman Empire exerted incredible mesmerizing influence. And the explanation for the rise and fall of the Roman Empire became incredibly important to people and the next part of this episode I'm going to have a little look at the reasons for the fall, what came afterwards and what the fall of the Roman Empire gave birth to. So that's it for this part. Do look out in a day or so for the next part of this special or this uh, episode on the fall of the Roman Empire and always remember that what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee and let's go out this week with a little bit of a sting from the marvellous I Claudius story of the Emperor Claudius and the Roman Empire bye the stammerer. I'm now about to write this strange history of my life.